only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Please turn in your Bibles, and if you're using the Pew Bible or one like it, like I am, okay, <laughs> page 945, 945. One good quality about the ESV versions is they try to keep whatever size you get the same page numbers. So, we're going to read beginning in verse 6 to get the, uh, remind us of the context. We're going to try to focus a good bit of our time on verses 19 through 23. Now, the question has come up about Israel, so many of the Jews rejecting their own Messiah. What's that all about, is basically the question. How can that be? If God says, I'll be a God to you, my people, then how can so many not be his people? Or how can so many not follow this God who gives his own son for them? And so Paul proceeds here to show that his purpose was always always involved his electing purpose, that within physical Israel, that he was going to draw to himself a certain number from Israel. And so he's faithful to his promise, which always had to do with this spiritual Israel. And that in turn exalts him as the God who shows mercy wherever he wants to. He is the God who is sovereign, sovereign to show mercy as king over all the earth. So that's the, the gist of this passage. And you'll notice his concern right here in verse 6 about the word of God or the promise and purpose of God in the Old Testament. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So Ishmael, who was born by, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Sarah giving her maid to Abraham, that's called a child of the flesh. But this impossible child that came from the union of Abraham and Sarah when they were 100 years and 90 years old and they had to trust completely in his promise and his word, that's through whom he will work. So it's not our own effort, our own devising, our own strength. It is through the the promise and powerful salvation of God that people will be saved. So, next example. And not only so, and that means even more importantly, even stronger, but also when Rebekah 
had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice or unrighteousness on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord, bless us. May we tremble at your glory and your power and tremble at your abundant mercy, which is promised to any who come to you through Jesus Christ. Oh, may we come. May we rejoice in that mercy and live that mercy out in every aspect of our lives. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. I know many of you have think that Prince's Bride is one of the funniest movies you've ever seen because I've heard you talk about it. And one of the funniest parts is when Inigo Montoya um, is concerned about the, the guy in the black outfit uh, who is coming to, is, is following them. Uh, he's, they think he's the dread pirate Roberts. And so Inigo Montoya says, are you sure nobody's follow us? That's the way he says it. And then Vizzini, as I told you, it will be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. Of course, he has a little lisp, a little lisp, inconceivable, right? And then when they've climbed up the cliff and the dread pirate is climbing up the big rope, Vizzini cuts it off, thinking he would fall to his death, but he doesn't because he's hanging on to the rocks, okay? He didn't fall, inconceivable, and then the great quote from Inigo Montoya, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? Well, it reminds me of people that, you know, use words not quite what they thought they meant. Like one of our little girls in the church, I don't think she says this anymore and I won't embarrass her in case she's in here, but she used to call me Chapter Darwin. I like that. My wife would say, yeah, he's a chapter, all right, yeah. He's a whole book, believe me. You know, <laughs> Or our friend years ago in the first church we served, uh, they later, we got to know her in different circumstances, but she and her husband actually came into our fellowship and became members. But she said, you know, I want to get one of those mammograms on my sweater. You know? 
great quotes forever. <laughs> Misunderstanding of a word. But one of my favorite misunderstandings of a word is when we were in Memphis during our clinical year. We'd just been married for a few months. And we were meeting people left and right. And one man, I can't remember his last name, but his first name was Clint. And Kay said, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a broker. And we were walking off from that. And Kay says, I can't believe he admitted that. I said, what, sweetie? He said he was a broker. And then I realized she thought he meant a bookie. <laughs> that was... Of course, some of us think, well, what's the difference? <laughs> right? <laughs> Same thing happens with your money sometimes. Right? Well, I think if... As, as these people were challenging Paul and saying that if God shows mercy without regard to somebody's merit, if he just shows mercy without regard as to whether someone's good or bad, and it's purely his own choice, they would tend to say, that's unrighteous. And if he was Inigo Montoya, I think he would say, I do not think unrighteous means what you think it means. <laughs> because as we've seen in the Old Testament, that rather than this being opposed to God's righteousness, it's the very expression of God's righteousness. Because in God's righteousness, he upholds his own majesty and his own glory. Always. That's what he does. That's who he is. And... We've seen first the absolute mercy of God, and that's our, we're going to have three points this morning. Absolute mercy of God, the tragic hardness of heart, and endless riches of glory. Now that last one, we're just going to spend a little time on it. But if you're keeping up with the acronym, that's eight. A-T, okay. Um, you know I don't care about those things, I'm just being... Absolute mercy of God, tragic hardness of heart, and endless riches of glory. But this absolute uh, mercy of God, as this challenge comes before Paul, and, and he, it's as though he's dealing with people who have dialogued with him in the past in the synagogue and interacted with him. So he's anticipating the kinds of challenges that he has had before. And so he goes back to Exodus 33 in this quote in verse 15. And he quotes the Lord's words to Moses. Moses, who's wondering if God will continue with Israel after Israel has worshipped the golden calf. And he asks kind of in an odd way, doesn't he, when he says, show me your glory. But in effect, he's saying, Lord, don't abandon these people. Show how glorious you are to care for these people, even in their sin. And it's as though God said, you got me. That's who I am. I show mercy wherever I want. And I show compassion wherever I want. I'm Yahweh. He says it right there. And you remember at the burning bush when he, uh, Moses says, Who will I say has sent me? And he says, Tell them I am that I am has sent you. And most commentators think that this is basically the explanation of that short phrase. I am that I am basically this. I show mercy wherever I want. I show compassion wherever I want. Here, God is unpacking His name of Yahweh. He does kind of an amplified Bible version of, I am that I am. I am the merciful one. I am the compassionate one. 
Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I proclaim my name and here it is. I'm the compassionate one. Charles Cranfield says, this is an especially significant revelation of the innermost nature of God. The innermost nature of God opened up to us in this way. So Paul is saying to elect Jacob and not Esau, not because of anything good they did, to show compassion so that it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, as he says in verse 16. This is so far from his uh, being unrighteous. It is his glory. This is the essence of who he is. And he must pursue this glory of his mercy. Now, for you and me, this means for us, don't try and give God a different name. He names himself as the all-merciful one. And it's interesting, even in the enlargement, uh, that great statement in Exodus 34, the very next chapter, where he says, I'm a God, merciful, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, uh, uh, faithful. This string of seven positive words, and there's one at the end that says, but I do judge the guilty. Well, every time that, that standard statement is repeated in the uh, Bible, except for one, it's as though the last part of that's left off. <laughs> not, not that it's not important and critical that God judges, but it's, it's the aspect of His mercy and compassion that's repeated uh, several times in the Psalms, in Nehemiah, in two different prophets, that, that standard phrase of, of I'm God who is merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And it's as though God says, and oh yeah, if you refuse that mercy, there is judgment. But it's all about the mercy. And even there in the the verse that Paul quotes, people say this is the essence of what he meant in that longer statement. And even there, what does he pull out of that? Not the judgment part of it. Yes, God will judge. Yes, there is punishment. Yes, there are vessels for destruction. But God is about his mercy. God is about his mercy. And we must not give him a different name. When you put yourself, for instance, on a performance basis with God, that you either have entered into this relationship on the basis of your good works or you're maintaining the relationship on the basis of your good works, then you're denying who God is. You're saying, He had mercy on me because He saw something in me that was good. And so now when I see bad stuff in my life, I know He won't keep loving me because it depends on my good deeds. No! He didn't show mercy on you because you were better or he, he liked the lineup of good deeds in you. He showed mercy of you in spite of everything in you. It was because of him. It's because he's sovereign in his mercy. You see, this is really just a different version of what we had earlier in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, where it says, he justifies the ungodly. He declares not guilty and accepts ungodly people. It doesn't say he justifies the godly. There are none of those, by the way, in the world. All he has to pick from are the ungodly. And in a normal courtroom, you justify the innocent and you condemn the guilty. But God justifies the guilty. 
The ones who are clearly guilty, He declares them not guilty. He declares them accepted because of their trust in Jesus Christ. And ungodly is rough. It's hard to hear. It may be too hard for you to hear. Ungodly? Oh, I mean, I've got some wrong things in my life. I mean, I'm not perfect. But ungodly? And you begin to list your accomplishments and all the things that make you not uh, ungodly. But listen, ungodly can be one of the most comforting things when you hear he justifies even the ungodly. Because that scoops as low as we go. (laughs) No matter what you are, no matter how evil any one of us is, he will justify us. And that's the same here. I show mercy where I want. And it doesn't, it's not blocked because somebody's too evil, too bad, too this or that. No, it it is not determined by anything in them. It's determined by my sovereign desire to show mercy. It's the same thing as Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He shows mercy where he wants. While we were enemies, we were reconciled. Not when we were, had made ourselves his friends. He says, you know, now that you've made yourself a friend, now that you've changed your life, I think I'll reconcile myself to you. Oh, you were an enemy when he reconciled himself to you and reconciled you to himself. It's because of his mercy. And so if you put yourself on a performance basis with God, then you're really denying God. There isn't a God who enters into a relationship based on a person's goodness. It's always based on mercy. And some of us are driven not by the love of God, but by a need to be approved by others. And at the root of that many times is a need to be approved by God. And we're driven and we're desperate. We define ourselves literally by our successes or accomplishments or how many things we get done this day by what others think about us. For some of us, we could never please our mom and dad. It was, there was never enough. You know, we're just built into us. We're constructed, uh, hardwired almost because of that to have to do and to do. We could never please them, never do enough, never get their approval. And of course, it's good to work hard. It's good to work until we're weary. But if we're driven by what others think to gain approval, to gain God's approval, then we're basically made up a God, the one who shows mercy to those who, uh, not the one who shows mercy to those who don't deserve it, but he shows it only to those who deserve it. Let me quote Paul Tripp from this past conference, who is talking about this very thing of how we perform. He says, We do and 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 do. And that was just a paraphrase. Okay, it went on. I just didn't want to be accused of plagiarism. But his point is that we're just driven, and many times not by what Paul says, the love of Christ. And you see, there's, in, that, in that scheme, there's a different God. Not the God who shows mercy, but the God who always is exacting more and more and more and is never satisfied and never likes us really, never approves us in Christ Jesus, never accepts us and embraces us. We never can rest in Him as Jesus says, Come to me. Ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Also, along these lines, if you live in self-righteousness, if you look down on others, if you are fundamentally, essentially, you think you're better than people of a different class or different social standing or race or intelligence or gifting, then that's just... And you just stay in this lifestyle in an unrepentant way then you are rejecting the God of mercy. You're saying, I didn't come to him on the basis of mercy. Now, they need it, poor things, where they are, the lack that they have compared to me. But you've not come to a point, or at least it's faded from view, that his mercy levels everybody. It's only mercy. Mercy means one thing. We don't deserve it. We're lost. We're broken. We need mercy. We need help. We're helpless. That's what mercy means. And so we're all leveled before him. We're all the same dependent, helpless people, no matter who we are. And that, on the other hand, is keeps you from saying, well, boy, all these people in the church are this or that, and I've done this, and they don't know what I've done. You don't know. You have no idea what all of us have done. If you're sitting here looking at us, I could make your hair stand on end by describing to you what we sinners have been in the past, including myself. I wouldn't edify anybody here, but don't sit there and think, well, these are a bunch of nice, good people that have never done anything wrong. We're lost people, and the only reason God had mercy on us is because He loves to have mercy. He loves to have mercy on lost people. He shows the same mercy, absolute mercy. And I love that phrase in verse uh, 23, vessels of mercy. (laughs) A a piece of pottery, a piece of, of... construction that God has made, and it's a vessel that will hold mercy, recipient of mercy, one who trusts in mercy, one who rejoices in mercy, whose life is marked by the comfort and assurance and strength of God's mercy, one whose life is transformed and conditioned by God's mercy, a vessel of mercy. Those are the only believers, those are the only Christians in the world... Vessels of mercy. So, absolute mercy. Secondly, tragic hardness of heart. Tragic hardness of heart. When he first mentions Pharaoh in verse 17, you don't really get what Paul's, uh, why he really brings up Pharaoh, but the word hardness of heart in some form or fashion is used 20 times in that context. It's all about hardness of heart in the in the Exodus there in regard to Pharaoh. And so Paul has in mind that whole context when he comes to this particular verse in verse 17. I've raised you up to show my power, to show the power of my salvation as I deliver my people, to show my great name as I deliver my people, and the power of my wrath on those who refuse me. And that's why he brings up, without even explaining himself, Hardening in verse 18 because he's thinking of that whole context of how Pharaoh continued to harden his heart and harden his heart and harden his heart. And so God displayed more and more his great power to deliver, his great power to save. Now, we don't have time to go through all the 
to, to give you the text, and it would be confusing to hear these 20, 30 texts, but let me just show you what hardness of heart is associated with, uh, just the result of my own uh, word study on this. Hardness of heart is associated with these following uh, characteristics, okay, in Scripture. And if you want some references, uh, see my secretary. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> being stiff-necked, being uncircumcised of heart, being unrepentant, alienated from the life of God, not yielding to the Lord, not turning to the Lord, resisting the Holy Spirit, not listening to God, not inclining your ear, refusing to hear. It's associated with unbelief. It's associated with having no fear of God, with being disobedient, blind, darkened in your understanding, willful ignorance, not remembering or caring about His wonderful deeds and wonderful ways. Now, it's important, I think, to see a little of the nuts and bolts of hardness of heart because, as we're going to see, we are fully responsible for our own hardness of heart and God is sovereign over the hardening of the heart. Okay? Hold those two things. We are entirely responsible for the hardness of heart that we have, but God is sovereign over the process. In other words... Though we're fully responsible, it's not as though it, took, it takes God by surprise. It's not as though that's not a part of God's plan. It's not as though God isn't going to use this for His glory, even as we responsibly turn away from Him. Irresponsibly, however you want to put that. He never participates in sin or encourages sin or promotes sin. And Scripture is jealous to preserve God's holiness. As James is in chapter 1 when he says, Don't anyone think that uh, when you're tempted that God is tempting you. Because first, God can't be tempted by sin. So he's on this side. Therefore, he's certainly not going to be on this side tempting you to sin. Because God can't even be. He has nothing to do with sin. So he's not tempting you to sin. You're tempted when you're drawn off by your own lust, as James says. But you see James' uh, jealousy to guard God from participating in evil. At the same time that Scripture wants to guard God from participating in any evil, which he does not, is just as determined to preserve God's sovereignty, his glory. And that's, that's where we get a little queasy. We get a little queasy with this word, hardened Pharaoh's heart. We get queasy with this idea that there are vessels prepared for destruction. The sheer sovereignty of it undoes us. It unhinges us. And see, this, this is why the question of verse 19, after saying that he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whom he, he wills, this question comes up, well, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Literally, it's not who is able to resist his will, but it's like a logic question. It's like, well, if God hardens whom he wills, then who is really resisting his will? Because if that's what he chooses, then they're just fulfilling his will when they resist it, because that's what he planned. Pretty nifty argument, actually. You know, like, wait a minute, if God planned it, and then they do what he planned, then is that really resisting his will? 
And Paul gets really upset right here. Because he says, you are trying to put God under a human being's values. And at this point, he begins to defend and, and stand for the sheer sovereignty of God and that God acts in perfect righteousness, perfect mercy, perfect justice at all times. And he, is, he is, uh, has the authority and the control to do whatever he wants. And that's when he begins to talk about, of course, the potter and the clay. And, of course, he could at this point say, oh, I'm sorry, you, you misunderstand me. I didn't really mean that God was absolutely in control of everything like it sounded like I was. He could have stopped right there, but he didn't, did he? And he could have even defended God in some way. But all he says was, in fact, the, the Greek says it like this, man, who are you to answer back to God? And the indication is, you're a man? And you're answering back to God? You're questioning, you're putting him under the microscope. That's the feel of Paul at this point. And so, Paul takes this as an offense against God, a rejection of the truth. And he underscores this absolute sovereignty of God using the common analogy that you'll find in Isaiah 29 and Jeremiah 18 of the potter and the clay. And I love how Piper, John Piper, puts this in his book-long exposition of Romans 9. He says, The presumption that a man's sense of values is ultimate and can prevail against God's sense of values is as ludicrous to Paul as a ranting figurine. I love that. A ranting, you know, a little statue, a ranting figurine. Why did you make me this way? You know, he says, that's what it's like. Because... Nobody could say anything about the man who has a piece of clay. He's mined the piece of clay. He owns the piece of clay. He can make this or he can make that. And you can't tell him that he did a wrong thing. He can do whatever he wants to because he is the artist. He is the maker. It's a different way to talk about what's in verse 18. When he says he has mercy on whom he wills, he hardens whom he wills. Let me put it this way. He can plan for a person to come into existence knowing that he will effectively win that person's heart and powerfully draw that person into a relationship with him. And he can plan for another person to come into existence and allow that person to continue to resist God even in the face of God's offer of his own son. Why he chooses to draw one person who would otherwise resist him and not draw another person who continues to resist him lies in his own sovereign choice. That is his glory. He is the potter. We are the clay. Would you turn with me in your hymnals to hymn 469? We're not going to sing, <laughs> though I'd love to sing this hymn. But I want to show you several uh, verses, uh, uh, yeah, verses of these hymns. There are three hymns, and you'll see the top of each one of these in six, uh, 469, 470, 471. Up in the upper left-hand corner is election. Now, there are probably some denominations with some hymnals that don't have anything about election, okay? But we do because that word is found 50 times in the New Testament, for instance. But 
Notice, notice the person's realization that if God hadn't entered into my life and changed me and shown the glory of Jesus and drew me, I would have resisted him too. Each one of these hymns. Verse 3, why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Notice, they make their wretched choice. It is on their own head. They refuse God. But I can't say, on the other hand, I was wise enough, smart enough, good enough to respond. I was made to hear your voice. You see? Verse 4 was the same love that spread the feast. It sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. If left to myself, I would have refused him. But he sweetly drew me in. The glory is all God's. He has mercy on whom he will. Next page. Notice the first verse, third line. But not for works which we have done or shall hereafter do has God decreed on sinful men salvation to bestow. Almost lifted out of Romans 9 when the boys had done neither good or bad. Okay, It's not him who wills. It's not him who, who runs. Verse 2, the glory, Lord, from first to last is due to thee alone. Ought to ourselves we dare not take or rob thee of thy throne, thy crown. Our glorious surety undertook to satisfy for man, and grace was given us in him before the world began. This is thy will that in thy love we ever should abide, that earth and hell should not prevail to turn thy word aside. Not one of all the chosen race, but shall to heaven attain. Partake on earth the purpose, grace, and then with Jesus reign. But it's not our works. And then, wonderfully, 471, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. Thou from the sin that stained me has cleansed and set me free. Of old thou hast ordained me that I should live to thee." To a sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. If You see, if, if you had not opened my mind, if your mercy had not called me, the world would still have my heart. I would be blind to your glories if you hadn't entered into my life and changed me. My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. Do you see? All glory to God. All glory to God. And none to ourselves. That's what God is about. That's why he acts righteously with Jacob and Esau. He acts righteously with Israel in saving them only because of his mercy. Now, this hardness of heart, let me just say a few things about it to unpack it, because I think we can understand a little more of the, as I said, the nuts and bolts of it. First of all, Pharaoh, who he picks, is just a type of all who resist God. So don't put Pharaoh in this little separate category. Hey, there was this one guy one time who had hardness of heart. His name was Pharaoh. Ooh, golly. 
You know, that kind of idea, like shuffle him off in the special place of condemnation because he's Pharaoh. But he's a type. He prefigures all who harden their hearts, including, frighteningly, the Jews themselves. Because Paul goes on in chapter 11 to talk about there is a remnant now saved from the Jews, but the rest have a hard heart. And here's the application for you and me. And then earlier in chapter 2, he's speaking to those Jews and he says, don't you know that God's patience with you is to lead you to repentance? But if you keep with your hard heart and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for the day of destruction. And it reminds you of this verse 22 where he's endured with patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So similar to Romans 2.5. But you see what this means if the people of God or those named the people of God in that day were in fear of having their hearts hardened, then the people of God now need to be concerned about the same thing. So the writer of Hebrews, as we'll see, warns us, warns us against hardness of heart. But turn to chapter 11. Let me show you this. Maybe this helps some too. Beginning with verse 5 of Romans 11. At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Okay? Why do this, this portion of Jews are chosen by grace just like Jacob was chosen by grace? You see, he's saying it's always been the case. Jacob was chosen by grace. Isaac was chosen by grace. Israel was chosen by grace. It's all of grace. And now there's a remnant chosen by grace. And he says, verse 6, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now notice, everybody by nature has what kind of attitude toward God? Pliable, submissive, desiring to glorify God, desiring to make Him the center of their lives? Well, no. We all have by nature hard hearts against God. He has already said in Romans 3, there is no one who seeks God. There's no awe and fear and respect to God in our hearts. There's none. We by nature have uncircumcised hearts. That's why, as Paul says earlier, the Spirit must bring about a circumcision of heart. We can't do it. We, we have uncircumcised hearts that refuse God. He must come in and change us. Ezekiel 36 says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone. That's the kind of heart you're born with. Heart of stone. He has to take it out. Put a heart of flesh in there. He says, I'm going to put my Spirit in you. And cause you and, and, and give you a new heart. Why not Pharaoh is real nice? You know, he was so kind and generous to the people of Israel. And he was always concerned about their work conditions. And he was always giving them time off and everything. And then God came along and hardened his heart. No, he was a bad dude. He was evil. And in hardening his heart is God... Not God not turning a good guy bad, but God giving a bad guy over to his sin. Romans 1 has the analogy that he gave them over to their sin, he says three times there. So it's a judicial action. 
If we continue in our sin and refusal, it's the very sign of the judgment of God upon us. that He is hardening our heart. And it's interesting, we don't have time to turn there either, but in 2 Corinthians 3, as Paul is talking about the hardness of the heart of Israel, he also says there was a veil over their mind so they didn't respond to God's grace through Moses. And he says, even now that veil is over their mind. And he says, so, so when we preach the gospel, that veil is still there. And he says, and then he equates that veil and that hardness of heart. He says, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they do not respond to the glory of Jesus. Blinded their minds. So God is sovereign over this. And two verses later, he reverses it in some and he shines into their heart the glory of Jesus. But our condition is this belonging to Satan. Having followed him, we're blinded by him. We are distorted by him. We are governed by him. We have this blindness, this refusal, this resistance is part of our being in league with Satan and being under his dominance. And that's why the writer of Hebrews can say, be careful that you not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's our sin that hardens us. It is Satan that hardens us and blinds us as we give ourselves up to him. But God is sovereign over the process. And it can even be said, he hardens their hearts. Because he is sovereign over even what we do in our evil. And he will even take that evil and use it for his glory. Even if it is to finally display the glory, as he says terribly here in verse 22, endured with much patience to show his wrath and make known his power. It was a terrible scene. I, I don't watch horror movies at all, except I've seen two. And one was years ago, Night of the Living Dead, right? The classic Night of the Living Dead. There's one scene that I just will have never forgotten. This lady who has not been yet taken in by the zombies, you know, and they're, I want to scare our kids. I'm ugly enough as it is without acting like a zombie. But um, <clears throat> this lady's uh, husband, though, has been infected, killed, and become a, a zombie. So she sees him out among them, amongst them. And she runs out to him, not realizing that he has changed and he will kill her. And this scene of her running to him and all these Zombies just closing in on her. And I think of that when I think of us running to our sin, running to self, running to our idols, and they just close in upon us. And the worst thing in the world is for God to judge us and say, Go. Go. You don't want me? Go. The worst thing in the world. For in, in the biblical words, for God to harden your heart and to let you go, to turn against him. The stunning thing here is that the greater purpose, he does say in verse 22, to make known his wrath and his power. But the way it's constructed, the real final big purpose is verse 23 in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, and this is scary from one perspective, 
and comforting from another, it's very scary to think that your rebellion against God will magnify the wrath of God and somehow be used to promote the mercy toward God's people as you form the contrast to the mercy and glory that they will have. And it shows that your attack against God can't really ultimately work against God's purpose because He will gain glory from you one way or another. But this word, riches of His glory, the um, unlimited capacity of everything God is, He's going to make known to these vessels of mercy. And there are passage after passage that talks about His riches. I just want to quote one because of the time. The endless riches of glory. After saying that we were dead in our trespasses and sin in Ephesians 2, and saying that we who were dead and were by nature children of wrath, looks like we're vessels for destruction there, by nature children of wrath, lost, dead in our sin. He raised us in love and mercy. The word mercy is used there. He raised us. He he came upon us. He took us. He gave us new life. He drew us. He wooed us. All the words that Scripture used. And we believed in Him. And it says the final end in view is so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Would you like God to show forever and ever the unlimited riches of His favor by showing kindness to you forever? Does that sound like a good deal? That He would spend His eternal unlimited energy in kindness to you, sinners though we are? That's this God of mercy. That's why I love this quote that Jacob picked on the first on page two of your bulletin from John Piper. God's interest is to magnify the fullness of his glory by spilling over in mercy to us. Therefore, the pursuit of our interest in our happiness is never above God, but always in God. God's greatest interest is to glorify the wealth of his grace by making sinners happy in him. May he do so for every single person here. Let us pray. O Lord, draw those who perhaps have never tasted of the grace of Jesus, who've never trusted in Christ, who've never looked to him to pay for their sins, to be the one who has sacrificed for them, who has borne the punishment of God on our behalf, never looked to Him and never trusted in Him, never seen You as the God of mercy and love who would even send His own Son, who, as John says, so loved the world He gave His only Son so that we might believe in Him and have eternal life. Oh Lord, draw us, draw those who have never been drawn. For, oh Lord, You're the only one that can overcome the resistance of our hearts. You're the only one that can shine light in the darkness that is there. You can only, you're the only one who can take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Oh, make us, Lord, willing and joyful to follow you. Make us to see your glory. 
Oh, bless us, Lord, God of abundant mercy. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?